This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason Mann and with me as usual is Rich Krejci. Hello, Rich. Hey, how's it going? Good, going well. Uh, things are good. <laughs> That's, I can't, yeah, you, you've, had a, you've had a busy few weeks there, but uh, things are, are starting to finally uh, open up a little bit for you. And then, uh, yes. yeah, in a good way though. In a good way, yes. Life is uh, is slowly returning to a normal, perhaps there'll be more time for podcasting and uh, good things for the show in the future. But uh, it's been, uh, even though we haven't done a lot of shows in the summer, I've enjoyed the episodes we've gotten a chance to do, explore some fun topics. And uh, no different today, a, uh, a fun one. Um, Rainus Lattice of uh, Lamar Maddock, of course, of the Handle uh, podcast. Uh, he uh, gave us this uh, suggestion of players who uh, had the... Uh, uh, best final seasons, uh, or you know, who of course you know were really effective in their uh, final season, and somehow you know fell face to the earth. Obviously, there are some all-time greats in that list who just happened you know really good in their late 30s or early 40s. But there's also some odd ones of, of players who you know I barely heard of or knew a little bit about, but not that much. So we kind of dug into a uh, a range of guys. Yeah, it's it's a fun little topic. We we I mean we could come on here and be like because a lot of the best overall seasons are guys that you would sort of think of like a Will Chamberlain, a Bill Russell, Tim Duncan, John Stockton, guys like that that had really good years in their final season. But that's not very fun to be like, hey, Tim Duncan was good, John Stockton was also good. Like that's not fun. So we decided, you know, we're, we will talk about those guys briefly and go over a little bit of their numbers, guys that did go out, you know, on top, guys that were all time legends that went out with great seasons or whatever. But what we wanted to focus on a little bit more was the guy, like you said, the oddities, the fun ones. The ones that have an interesting story, the ones that were, you know, 25 years old and, and, and left or guys that had a really good run at the end of the season and then just never played again for whatever reason. So more interested in, in that more so than just like us talking about how Wilt Chamberlain was good when he retired. Like that that's doesn't really seem to do much for for me. And it, it's not too fun. I mean, you know, those guys are already pretty good. You know that, you know, you don't really need us to to explain to you that Tim Duncan was a pretty valuable player even to his final season. So. 
yeah, he was still pretty great, even as, even as things were slowing down in his final season. Absolutely. So yeah, we're gonna get uh, a little bit of deeper cuts here. Uh, you know, a few, you know, um, at least one Hall of Famer, you know, great player, but very kind of overlooked in the uh, uh, pantheon of history. So dig into him as well. So yeah. Um, uh, so you know, if you if you look kind of if you're, you organized that this list in, in just a few looking at some of the different metrics, you know, what, yeah. what you kind of found out overall as far as lists go? Yeah, because I wanted to still give a little bit for, for, for people that are just looking, hey, what good players had their best final seasons or whatever? Here's this part of it before we get into the super deep cuts here. But uh, yeah, if you sort by win shares for best overall players in their last season, uh, tops is is Wilt Chamberlain at 18.2. Uh, Bill Russell second at 10.9. So Wilt's very much at, at 36, still a productive player. Bill Russell as well at age 34, still a productive player. A guy we're going to talk about here in a little bit, Chet Walker. Uh, he was at 10.5. And then the rest of the list without uh, naming the actual win shares, just to give you the rest of the top 10. I uh, got Tim Duncan, John Stockton, George Yardley, uh, Drazen Petrovic, Reggie Lewis, Arnie Johnson, and Bob Pettit. Uh, as far as uh, Drazen and Reggie Lewis and those sort of, we kind of decided to stay away from the guys that either died or had horrible tragedies or whatever, because I think that's maybe a different uh, episode than this one. Because this is more about kind of celebrating what those guys did in their final season and then, you know, talking about what they did or why they left the league and all that sort of stuff. Whereas those guys just didn't feel right to to, to bring them, them up in, in, in this discussion. So um, we, we're not going to cover those guys. So if you're like, hey, this guy was good and then he you know died like that guy we're not going to talk about those guys in here we will mention them in here yeah. if they are on these lists but yeah as far as the deeper dives we're, we're not going to do those guys for today yeah and we have a full episode on reggie lewis for those who are very yes yeah which is awesome on yeah one of yeah. our one of our better early episodes i think for sure we uh seth partnow came on and, and saved us by uh <laughs> yeah that's some good stuff on there so yeah and, uh, yeah and, and draws and i know well we've talked about you know, here and there I'm, I'm sure we'll get to a deeper thing on uh on his career as well but uh yeah so just uh we're not ignoring those guys just not really part of exactly what's uh, uh, going on here. Yeah, if you look at um, you know points per game, uh, there are a handful of guys who had more than 20 points per game. Uh, Bob Pettit in his final season, age 32, 22.5. Uh, Drazen was right behind him, 22.3. Uh, Paul Arizon for the uh, Philadelphia Warriors in 62, 21.9. Uh, Reggie Lewis was right there at 20.8. And then uh, guys like uh, Rudy LaRusso, uh, George Yardley, uh, Larry Bird, all right above 20. And then right below 20 were Chet Walker, Clyde Drake. Drexler and uh, Dave DeBusher. So, uh, you know, still scoring it and, and uh, Busher and, um, and Walker, you know, were, were really still very stout in the 30s. Almost uh, Walker in particular, we'll talk about, was probably better in his early 30s than he was in his yeah. mid-20s. So, which is yeah, uh, pretty rare, obviously, in NBA history. Yeah, as far as guys with uh, rebounds per game, uh, number one is, is probably going to be pretty obvious to most people. It's Bill Russell uh, at 19.3 rebounds per game. Uh, other guys that had uh, 10 or more, Wilt Chamberlain at uh, 18.6. Uh, Happy Hairston, a guy that we didn't do a deep dive of, but maybe, you know, he's one that was definitely on the cutting board of a guy who's, who had a really good career and a really good final season, but maybe not on the same level as, you know, the, or of course not on the same level as your Bill Russells, your Chamberlains, and some of the other guys we're going to mention. Uh, but he was at 12.8. Bob Pettit at 12.4. Uh, Wes Unseld, 10.7. Dave DeBoer. 10.7 and then a few other names here Harry Gallatin uh, Brad Doherty and Larry Bird Brad Doherty would have been a pretty fun one as well but uh, his is not really as fun it's just like his back really hurt and <laughs> he didn't want to play anymore so uh, yeah. and then uh, Tim Duncan as well but uh, yeah so he uh, rounds out that list of, of top overall and uh, rebounds per game yeah, if you look at PER, you know a bunch of guys who are in the in the low twenties. Uh, Tim Duncan twenty two point six. He's tied with Pettit at twenty two point six. Uh, Marlbert Pratt, who we're going to get into uh, much more. Twenty one point seven. Very limited minutes, but so interesting case. Uh, Eddie Miller and Marlbert Pratt was played for the um, New Orleans Buccaneers in the sixty nine season uh, for. Uh, 
uh, for those keeping track. Uh, Eddie Miller of the um, Baltimore Bullets, the original Baltimore Bullets, not the uh, later version, 54. Uh, John Stockton, at 40 years old, very impressive. Larry Bird, uh, both at 21. Uh, 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 Mark Stoudemire and Arvidas Sabonis, uh, Clyde Drexler and Harry Gallatin all, you know, kind of rounding out that list. So some obviously some obvious names in there and a few obscure ones as well. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so that's uh, I think it's a good little deep dive at the guys. So we just wanted to give a little bit of credit to those guys that they actually you know were the legends, but stayed uh, in even in their final season, stayed uh, super productive as well. But uh, now we're gonna now we're gonna take some deeper dives into these other guys. So yes, absolutely. All right. Yeah, you want me to start with uh, old Stippo? I don't, yeah. How do you actually pronounce his last name? I don't know if I know Stepanovich. Is it is it just that uh, easy? I'm 99 percent sure it's Stepanovich. Yes. Okay, so we'll go with Stippo Steve Stepanovich here uh, in his final season. So uh, just a little bit of background on Stepanovich. Uh, he was taken by the Indiana Pacers uh, with the second overall pick in the 1983 draft. Uh, after a slow start to the season, uh, he had a productive rookie year. He uh, averaged 12. Uh, points per game, uh, 6.9 rebounds per game, and uh, was on the All-NBA rookie team. So I made uh, really a fixture in the Pacers lineup uh, for the next five seasons in Indianapolis. Uh, not really good, though. The team had a lot of struggles. I mean, of course, we've talked about them many times in the 70s, uh, one of the crown jewels of the ABA. Um, then, you know, when they come to the NBA, they have a little bit of growing pains, and that kind of remained for quite a while. Uh, they were last placed in 1983, 84, 85, and 86. But in 1987, they had a surprise run uh, to the NBA playoffs. That was only the franchise's second trip. Uh, since merging into the NBA, so that was a rare, uh, rare thing for them. And uh, unfortunately, though, Stepanovich, uh, he played only one more season after that playoff trip in uh, 1987. Uh, 1988, he uh, averaged 13.5 points per game, 8.3 rebounds per game, and shot 49.6% from the field. That uh, was good for 6.9 win shares and a .132 win shares per 48. So, you know, not all-star great level, but but pretty solid numbers there for, for a guy. Uh, unfortunately, he had a degenerative knee condition that ended his career. Um, and this is pretty interesting here. Um, following his retirement from the NBA, he uh, tried a, a variety of different careers including real estate sales in Oregon, and he eventually returned to St. Louis where he is the owner and operator of a coal mine. In St. Louis. Stippo. The old Stippo coal mine. I don't know. I kind of want to go find that. I'm not that far from St. Louis. I wonder if I I ask, uh, if I drive around and ask if they know where Steve Stavanovich's uh, coal mine is or if I just go to every coal mine and ask if Steve Stavanovich is there. Um, Which would Uh you suggest? Well, I mean, I'm not sure how many coal mines there would be. (laughs) I don't either. That's the problem. I don't know what's easier. I don't know if it's easier just to go to every coal mine or ask a bunch of people if they know where Steve Stavanovich's coal mine is. It's fair. Yes. Uh, He's also uh, infamous for uh, an incident in 1980 when he was in college at the University of Missouri in which he um, accidentally disloaded a, discharged a loaded firearm hitting himself in the shoulder. Initially, he said that a maxed intruder did it. A maxed Some Puerto intruder. Rican guy. <laughs> Some Puerto yes. Rican guy, I tell you. <laughs> right, and uh, said that he was shouting obscenities about basketball players and then the next day he admitted that he had done it himself. So um, I do like anyway. that, that he used, like, this guy was being mean to basketball players. So right, exactly. Like, like, he, like, he was attacking, like, basketball players. Yeah, that is Like, it's not the, just enough to be an intruder to your house. It's like, he was being mean to basketball players. Right. He I had to shoot players. him. Yes, <laughs> right. it was, uh, is that considered a hate crime? I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It, 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 old Stippo it was. Yes. Yeah, it, apparently. Yes. So You come he, to my house, but you don't dare besmirch my profession. All right. Exactly. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, he uh, that that was of course uh, decades before. Who was the Notre Dame guy who made up his girlfriend? Um, uh, Manti Teo. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And so, decades before, Plasco Burris shot himself in the uh, leg. So yes, of- he didn't lie about it. But but yeah, no, he, he was just like, yep. I don't remember if he did or not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not quite sure. Maybe he lied about the ownership of guns or or whatnot. But yeah, I don't. Right. Uh, I mean, it didn't yeah. work out well for Plasco, regardless. But yeah, he it wasn't as big of a uh, a lie. Manti Teo was a uh, web of lies there. So. Yes, that was that, that was the more infamous incident so he predated him by a couple of decades so uh trendsetter i guess in the realm of lying but <laughs> uh next we have uh chet walker he uh, chet the jet as he was known uh was already a three-time all-star for the 76ers including the great 1967 team that won the championship and the celtics dynasty he went 68 and 13 and was you know considered one of the greatest teams of all time they had you know really deep roster you know billy cunningham um, Hal Greer, Wally Jones, Luke Jackson is, you know, really deep roster. But that was more, even though they had Wilt and obviously what was their most important player and, and, and dominant, but he was more, they, they were more of a, you know, complete team. He wasn't getting a whole lot of shots in the situation because he was kind of, you know, behind some of those guys in the pecking order and um, Billy Cunningham was coming on. So uh, after Wilt left, they were still a really good team. In fact, in, in his last uh, season with Chet Walker, they were still, they still won 55 games. And uh, once he was traded to the Bulls, um, even though they basically had the same roster otherwise, they dropped to a 42 where the Bulls immediately after um, Chet joined in, uh, even with some other very good players like uh, Norm Van Leer and uh, Jerry Sloan and Bob Love, they uh, went they they immediately became one of the best teams in the league and they won uh, 50 straight games for five straight seasons and um and his the odd thing about him is in his early 30s, just his numbers really um, surged. You know, his advanced stats were better. If, if you look at his per game numbers, um, he had um, he, he had 16 points per game with the uh, 76ers and when they were in Syracuse to the Nationals, and that went up to uh, 20 points per game. He became one of the best free throw shooters. I think he was just shooting at 85 percent with the Bulls, and just really uh, was you know in, in improving both his efficiency and his volume and. Um, you know, it was still on a team with a lot of scoring options. You know, Bob Love was a, was a good scorer. You know, Norm Van Leer was setting those guys up. They, they had a lot of, uh, you know, guys to feed, but he definitely was able to do that. And, and I wonder if it was, you know, system-wide or if it was just, you know, he did thrive during a time in which, you know, expansion had and the ABA had obviously changed the dynamics of the league. And, you know, small forward was one position where the ABA was really strong. So maybe that spread things a little bit thin. He took advantage of that. But nevertheless, it's really interesting to see how he thrived so much, you know, in his early 30s. Yeah. And I think I remember um, reading a a number of quotes about Billy Cunningham and him, him, you know, wanting a certain style with his teams or whatever, wanting a certain thing. And and it could be a comfort level as well with Chet. You know, he, he, you know, leaves a team with a a ton of established guys or whatever. Kind of feels like the young kid with all these established dudes where he goes to the Bulls and it seems like everybody on that team was sort of in the same realm or in in the same point of their career or whatever. I mean, mixing with those guys, it just seemed to work a lot better. And and yeah, it was a huge success for the Bulls uh, over the next uh, half decade there for, for, um, for Chet. And, you know, and it wasn't just uh, Chet on his own. Like you said, there was Bob Love, there was Jerry Sloan, there was a few other guys that, that kind of contributed there. But yeah, it was uh, uh, certainly an interesting period. And yeah, it's just, it, it's, it's it's remarkable how much better his numbers were as a bull. So yeah, there's just some something there, some comfort level, something that really kind of worked and made him uh, into one of the better players uh, in the league for quite a few years. Yeah, I mean, he was probably like at a level of like Vince Carter, but if Vince Carter had had his best years in his early 30s, that, that's kind of, that was right, yeah. kind of roughly what he would have been at that point. And um yeah, and he was um, 
you know, the Bulls lost Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals to the Warriors in 75, and then they got into a, uh, the Bulls got into a huge uh, contract dispute with the Chet, and he decided he'd rather sit out rather than deal with uh, uh, their brazenness. He, um, he, the, the lead for the AP story said, um, he says that he, Chet Walker says he quit the Chicago Bulls because they treated him like an idiot. And, uh, <laughs> and basically they talk about the dispute and, and the actual words from, I, I think it was either Mata or it, Dick Mata, who was the coach and GM, or and it was the owner of actually Arthur Wurtz at the time. His quote was, if he wants to play, he's our property. We made him a contract offer that is more than fair. Obviously, calling someone their property, even if you have the rights to them, you know, in, in, in basketball terms is obviously an ugly thing to say. So um, yeah, he was even though he could have had a few good years left and the Bulls were still, you know, they could have probably brought everybody back and still been a you know Western Conference championship contender. They decided not to do that. And he and he. Uh, Walker later wrote about, you know, the fact that, um, you know, he'd grown up in, you know, incredibly racist Mississippi and and dealt with, you know, the obstacles that, you know, that black people had to deal with um, Mississippi. And he was like, you know, what? I don't need to do this. So um, and, uh, and and then he retired and that and they were immediately, even though they had a similar roster, they fell a 24 wins. So obviously they missed him quite a bit. Those guys were aging a little bit, too. But still, he was uh, definitely the, you know, was really important for the team and maybe just because he didn't necessarily have, you know, awesome individual stats. He had very good ones, but, you know, it was more of the kind of the efficiency and that stuff that stands out now that maybe wouldn't have stood out back then. He really, um, you know, obviously added something else that maybe didn't the numbers didn't pick up that, you know, led those teams to great success. Yeah, and it really, I mean, it effectively ended that era of the Bulls. I mean, the Bulls had a really good run there. It looked like a, a team that could possibly get stuff done. But, I mean, everybody was feuding with everybody. Everybody hated each other. It was like Chet left and, like, not only him leaving, but there was also, I think, issues with Van Leer. I, I know Mata was just everybody hated him and he hated right. everybody. Uh, yeah. Bob Love had a big contract disputes or whatever. So that thing was 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 teetering on the edge. And then once Chet left, that was kind of it. So even though those guys were still back, like you could see the drop off in their numbers. You could see the drop off in the team, of course, uh, you know, plummeting to 24 wins or whatever. And then to be quite a few years until the Bulls were, were respectable again until uh, yeah. uh, probably until the mid 80s. I mean, they had a few you know blip years there in the, in the late 70s. OK years. But yeah, it really wasn't until uh, Michael Jordan arrived that they uh, they got it together. But uh, yeah, that's yeah. always uh, always fun when you see uh, whenever you think owners today are horrible. And remember, they were somehow, some way, much worse back then. So yeah, yeah. Well, they were allowed to be openly worse, I guess. Now. Exactly. I mean, right. Right. Now you have to behave, but back then you didn't have to. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and when he retired, I mean, Walker was uh, among the top ten or so leading scorers of all time. You know, guys with like West and Baylor and Havlicek. I mean, he was he was up there pretty high in terms of all time scoring. Now, you know, only eighteen thousand grip points. That's that's not that high. But at the time when he retired, he definitely was. You know, he he was pretty high up there. Yeah, and you can make a reasonable case that if he played, you know, three or four more years of of how much different he would be, you know, remembered historically. And like you said, yeah, still very, very well uh, liked and well regarded or whatever. But I mean, he could be, and he's not a guy that comes up when you talk about legends or guys that you talk about when you talk about all time greats or whatever. You know, three or four more years, given that his production hadn't fallen off and was actually increasing in those last few years, it would have been interesting to see, especially if maybe he stayed with the Bulls and that Bulls team made an NBA Finals or something like that. Maybe not win a title, but you know, maybe competed a little bit more, had a few more years of their peak. Yeah. Whereas you know, you look at the five-year peak and then they just plummet immediately and 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 he's out of the league and all that sort of stuff it, it does change the narrative um around him a little bit absolutely yeah and the nba of course uh you was right about to be at a point where there was a lot of parody going on so they sure. definitely could have been you know they could have been a, a team that contended for a title even if they were getting a bit older there you know assuming he was able to keep that production for another couple years and um 
Uh, and yeah, and he didn't make the Hall of Fame until 2012, so he definitely deserved it earlier, and probably would have gotten earlier had you know things turned right. differently. But but you know, I mean, obviously, a, uh, a pretty easy to admire. You know, the principle that it took for him to leave. You know, even you know, pretty good money during that time, even when he, um, you know, because of how he was treated and uh, and so forth. Yeah, but that's uh, the Wirtz family was uh, was quite uh, remarkable as far because they owned the Blackhawks for for many years and they still own the Blackhawks, but it's it's now the son of the son. Or, you know, it, it's a long lineage, but this guy seems to get it. But yeah, around the same time as as this was all going on, the, the Blackhawks, who were a good team, you know, for for many 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 years in the NHL, of course, uh, they eighties uh, and nineties they didn't have their games on TV. They had like blackouts because you know then people aren't. Why would you come to the game if you you know? And then instead, nobody cared about the Blackhawks. It was just right. like, all right, well then we won't care about them. So yeah, uh, yeah the Wirtz uh, not the smartest uh owners in uh, sports but uh they've gotten better now so yay <laughs> yeah exactly yes so all right so move on to jesse branson now uh i've never heard of jesse branson i assume most people listening to this probably have never heard of jesse branson but uh fascinating career here for old jesse branson uh, he played five games with philadelphia uh in 1966 and if you're saying oh that team sounds familiar uh, that was a loaded 76ers team that had uh wilt chamberlain of course uh luke jackson the aforementioned chet walker um Branson is quoted as saying he didn't really fit in with that team because they were really good and he was this kind of young rookie coming into the league and they really had nothing to do with him. They didn't really care to have anything to do with him. They were a veteran team that was looking to win. Uh, he did say though that he did befriend uh, Wilt Chamberlain and they did, uh, they did get along. Uh, but he did not get along with other veterans on the team and, and he really struggled to find a role uh, on the 76ers, which makes sense. You're a rookie and they're a really good team. They have real no need for you. And he's not really a great player either. He's okay, but not, not super great. Uh, anyway, the team made it all the way to the Eastern Conference finals. Uh, they lost to the Celtics. Uh, but, uh, Branson, he decided to move on. He was done with that. He, uh, did not play the next year. He had back problems. Um, but he did pop up on uh, the New Orleans Buccaneers of the ABA in 1968. Uh, on his team, he played alongside future Hall of Fame head coach Larry Brown. That's the team we talked about a little bit as well during our 70s series last summer. Uh, and then in his only NBA, only ABA season, rather, he scored 13.9 points per game on a team that made it all the way to the ABA finals. He was sixth on the team in minutes. He scored uh, 1,086 points and averaged 11 points per game in the playoffs. Uh, but what's interesting, though, is you're kind of saying, well, yeah, you know, he played one year in the ABA and the team probably went away. Well, no, the Buccaneers stayed around. The franchise didn't go away. Uh, they actually stayed around for a few more years. Uh, he just left. And it's really very interesting because uh, he he scored 17 points and had 11 rebounds and then uh, scored 11 points and five rebounds in his last two pro games. So it's not like he, you know, it's like he got injured at the end of the year and, and, and couldn't go or whatever. He was still productive, even to the final few games of his season. Uh, but the same back problems that played them, you know, in the early part of his career uh, finally did him in and he retired. And that was it for him as far as basketball. But uh, you look at a guy who yeah, you think back problems, you think, OK, he's going to kind of slog around. I mean, that's uh, modern guys that have back problems. They'll kind of slog around and have a few you know, pretty terrible years. Maybe they're out half the year. Uh, maybe they go get surgery or whatever and they, they can't come back and they can't get healthier, that sort of stuff. He was playing until the final minutes and being productive into the final minutes of his career and then just set him out. So basically had six. Six games uh, in the NBA, uh, had a full season with the ABA, uh, the ABA Buccaneers, made it to the ABA Finals, and then said, nah, my back hurts, I'm out, I'm good. And that's it. That's it for Jesse Branson. Uh, he died, unfortunately, in uh, 2009, uh, but uh, he, he had his number retired by Elon University, where he is still considered the best player in that program's history. Old Elon University. The f- they're the fire of the flame or something like that. I forgot what exactly it is. It's some fire motif. Yeah. Well, still, he, he means, the, you know, the flame as far as we're concerned. Yes, exactly. Right, right. Yes. So, um, Willie Somerset, he uh, c- kind of a similar story to um, to Jesse Branson. 
He was a five eight guard Phoenix. from. Sorry, I don't want to. I don't want to uh, besmirch the Elon. All of our no. listeners from the Elon University. They're the Phoenix, but that was great yes. about the fire mode team. Yeah. So there you, there you go. go. There you go. So uh, <laughs> you can't hold a candle to uh, you know uh, his accomplishments. Willie Somerset, 5'8", from uh, from Duquesne University, uh, played very briefly in the NBA, the eight games for the Baltimore Bullets, and then um, and then popped in the uh, ABA a couple of years later where he um, uh, really played well for the Houston Mavericks, um, uh, who uh, I'm trying to think of the lineage of Houston Mavericks now. I mean, the Mavericks became the um, – they became Dallas and then they became uh, – no, wait a minute. But never mind. I'm for whatever. Oh, no, they became the Cougars. That's right. Yeah, the Houston Mavericks became the Cougars, and then the Cougars went away before the uh, before the uh, merger. So, um, anyway, then went to the Nets very briefly, and was excellently. Uh, it was an excellent scorer, uh, even despite his size. He was considered really tough to guard very quick, and smaller guards could thrive in the NBA or in the ABA, where it was tougher in the uh, NBA to do. So they, they just it was more that they weren't open to the idea of smaller guards rather than they could not have succeeded there. But before I mentioned Larry Brown was a guy who stood out. But uh, in his final season, he averaged twenty three point eight uh, points per game and was you know very effective. Was an All Star uh, that season. Now obviously the ABA was his second year. It was still um, you know getting its legs behind it, and it's not necessarily the best quality you know in the league. But you know he was fifth in the league in points per game. He was eighth in assists per game. You know he was really really stood out. Um, and uh, uh, APBR did some really good uh, research into him. He actually uh, also played for the Eastern Basketball League in the uh, interim, and you know he kind of bounced around. Was in camp with uh, the Oakland Oaks, and eventually uh, you know made it to uh, made it to Houston. Didn't really like it in Houston, despite you know being pretty successful there. Went to the uh, Nets, and um, he uh, eventually decided he wasn't that happy in New York either. And uh, he um, and then and in, in, so he. Even though he was really effective, he decided to drop out, and apparently he uh, went to a career. Well, he did play in the EBL for a couple more years, uh, but after basketball, he apparently became a pharmacist. So, uh, so a nice trade, obviously. And back then, basketball players weren't making super money. So, you know, a pharmacist—that's a—it's a pretty good trade. That's a hell of a deal. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah. He's not the only. There's a few other guys that I remember. I'm blanking on their names exactly, but I remember a few other guys that retired to become pharmacists. Like that was a, it's a hell of a thing. The NBA to pharmacist uh, lineage. Um, yeah, maybe we'll have to do an episode on that. You know? <laughs> exactly. I didn't <laughs> have to get a, a real life pharmacist on it. We have to get a there pharmacist. Go. Yeah. Uh, there's got to be an NBA podcast that also moonlights as a pharmacist, right? Given this <laughs> history, of I, I would have to think so. Yeah. Yeah. You know. uh, <laughs> Obviously, yeah. So, yeah, that's pretty interesting. I mean, I would, I think, you know, I'd, I'd absolutely become a pharmacist more than an NBA player. I'd be like, I don't know about now, but yeah, I'd, I'd consider it. I feel like my back hurt yeah. a little bit. I'd be like, yeah, pharmacy's pretty good too. That's pretty yeah, good money. It's not bad. You guys I mean, stand, you guys stand up a lot when you're a pharmacist. That's true. That's so maybe the back wouldn't help. Yeah, maybe, maybe yeah. it has to be another injury there. But uh, yeah, I mean, you can always yeah. sit in a stool or something. I guess. Yeah, know. sure. You could be the stool one. Yeah, you could be the one that just yeah. calls the the hospital to be like, yeah, yeah, this is, yeah, girl yeah. pharmacist, but. Yeah. <laughs> Let's have more pharmacy talk on this show. I think that's what the people are really listening for is, is deep yeah. discussions about uh, pharmacy. Anyway, let's move on. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we obviously know a lot about the pharmacy. Trade, right, so yes. I, I, that, I've already exhausted everything that I know about pharmacists. Is white coat, yeah. uh, call hospitals sometimes. That's as far as I know. So, And there, you know you that go. they stand a lot sometimes. So I, I see them stand. I, I assume that <laughs> you know that they stand quite a bit. That's, it seems like a fair assumption. Their computers are always at standing level. It's never at sitting level, the computers. They always got to kind of stand near the computer. So yeah, it's rough, yeah. Paul Newman. <laughs> Paul Newman, not not the uh, actor Paul Newman. Oh, it's not. Okay, well then, 
I don't have yeah, any notes on him. Different <laughs> I have nothing. Yeah. So move on. Yeah. I was going to talk about yeah. his uh, his delicious uh, spaghetti sauces, but now I have nothing. Yeah, so. they're good. They're very good spaghetti sauces. So I do like the salsa yeah. too. The salsa's on point. The salsa's little, excellent. But, yeah, uh, the, any of the Newman's own stuff, I, I recommend. Yeah, I, I've never steered me wrong. <laughs> It's a little pricey, uh, so but it's quality. It's you know? worth it, but you know it's going to a good cause. You know what I mean? And it's not some soulless well, corporation yeah. getting it. So yeah, yeah. So and, I, I enjoy like Paul Newman the actor quite a bit. Yeah, what's your favorite yeah. Paul Newman movie? Uh, oh man, um, what's the, what's what's uh, my dad's gonna kill me if I don't actually? What's the name of the racing one that he's in? Oh, um, hmm. He's, he's like, like an indie racer. Yeah. Oh, right. God, that's yeah. Oh, my dad's gonna kill me. He doesn't listen yeah. to this. Thank God. I like the, the podcast, uh, I so. like the hockey one a lot. I'm blanking out the hockey one. Oh, Slapshot. Slapshot's really good. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I like uh, all the George Roy Lee ones. Uh, George Roy Hill ones. The mm-hmm. uh, the Sting's really good, and uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. I like all those a lot. You know, uh, I'm a Hitchcock fan, but the one the Hitchcock movie he's in is not that good, unfortunately. So, uh, uh, Torn Curtain. Not 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 uh, highly recommended. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, what is the one I'm, I'm blanking on? What the hell the name of the? Uh, all right, you you talk about one. Paul Newman, the other Paul Newman, and I'll look it up and we'll, <laughs> okay. we'll figure it out. All right, thank you. All so right. apparently there are two Paul Newmans in this world. Uh, this one was selected in the fourth round of the 1959 NBA draft by the Syracuse Nationals. I played two seasons with the Nationals and remained with the team as it moved to Philadelphia and was renamed the uh, Philadelphia 76ers. Of course, in 1965 he was traded at midseason along with Connie Dirking and Lee Sheffer to the San Francisco Warriors for a little player known as Wilt Chamberlain. Uh, Newman was probably, I think, almost inarguably the best player uh, sent away for Chamberlain. Uh, unfortunately, though, he only did play two additional seasons with the Warriors before retiring in 1967. Uh, his last season, he averaged 13.9 points per game, 4.4 uh, assists per game, and 3.5 rebounds per game. Uh, Advance-wise, he comes in at 5.8 win shares. So again, pretty pretty good. Now, you know, not all-star level, not great level, not legendary level, but but a fairly good season for a guy that's you know going to retire and that's his final season. Uh, the Warriors, they were a very good team at that point. They had won uh, 44 games and made the NBA Finals against, ironically, the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, the Warriors ultimately lost in six games. Newman didn't contribute much in the NBA Finals. I uh, played only 13.3 minutes per game and averaged only 3.3 uh, points per game. So you can kind of see him winding down a little bit more than, uh, like Jesse Branson were talking about, the final games of his career, he was still pretty good. Paul Newman, you know, those final games, he, he, he had kind of fallen off a little bit. Um, there and as far as you look at his season, it's it's pretty interesting. He had scored in double figures in sixty of seventy eight regular season games, uh, and then his fall off really came in the playoffs. He reached double figures only twice in the playoffs. He failed to hit that mark in the last eleven games of his NBA career, uh, and then the last two NBA games that he played in, he played in only seven and eight minutes and scored only zero and uh, scored zero and two points in those as well. So I can see the fall off there a little bit. I don't necessarily know exactly what injury it was. It's kind of hard to figure out uh, what it was exactly that. Uh, Spelled Paul Newman. Maybe he just was sick of the team. Maybe he was just, but it, it looks like injury. It looks like something broke down in his body and he just didn't either say or, or it wasn't really publicized. But uh, yeah, that was it for Paul Newman's NBA career. But uh, forever known as one of the three guys traded for Wilt Chamberlain. And uh, that's a, a trade as well that's known as like a historically awful trade because, you know, the, the return wasn't great. But when, you know, Wilt's like, hey, I want to leave, it, it's kind of hard to really get a great return <laughs> on a guy that says, I don't want to be here anymore. And I want to be traded. So uh, that's it. But yeah, you know, that's uh, I, the, Paul Newman's. Career, the uh, the non salsa um, selling Paul Newman. Yes. So winning is the uh, oh, name. it's so uh, simple. I should have yeah, right. Yes. So there you go. There you go. Very so, good one if you haven't ever seen it. So 
Yeah, it's 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 a good one. The, the Hustler is pretty good. You know that one I, I'd forgotten about. Um, you know, oh, the Vert. That that's a good one. The um, one where he's the lawyer and it's the malpractice. Oh, you know, I, I don't think I've ever seen that one. I'll have to check it that's out. That's a good so. one. Uh, Road to Perdition. That's another uh, older. Oh yeah, of Tom course, Hanks yeah, of course. and their gangsters. Yeah. yeah, that's a good one too. So oh, I forget he's anyway. even in that one. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. He's the uh, probably his last you know really good role. You know. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I had no idea how much he did, um, how much like race car stuff he did like later in his life. That was, yeah. Like, no, that was like, it. Like after that movie, he was yeah. like, I love race car driving, and that was it. Like that. Yeah. So that's how I know him a lot more is because my dad's a huge race fan, and 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 I uh, there's a time apparently I met him once or something like that. Like there was always oh, wow. like his because he used to go to races all the time and he'd always bring me. I mean, I was super young at that point, but he says like he owned cars, he raced cars, he he was all about it after a while. So it's it's definitely pretty interesting yeah. there that. Yeah, that's where I met Walter go. Payton well, as well. Uh, Chicago Bulls, or <laughs> Chicago Bears legend Walter Payton. Yeah. I met him racing. I had no idea. Like all I knew of him was as a racer for a long time until somebody told me. You know, he played football, right? I was like, oh no, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> uh, there you go. Nice. Well, it's, it's, he uh, stole my hat. I was I was really pissed. My dad oh. had to like ask him nicely if he could have my hat back because he like I had a White Sox hat and he was like, oh, can I take this? And I was just like, as a kid, I was just like, no, that's my hat. And I got like really upset. My, my I like went to tell my dad and he was like, what? He's like, I was like, that guy stole my hat. And he's like, oh. Hi, Walter. Yeah. Like, how are you? Awkward conversation. <laughs> right, yeah. yes. Um, Walter, can my son have his hat back? Thanks. It was nice of your dad to uh, have your back and get your hat back. You know, so right, but thankfully Walter signed it. Just, yeah. Yeah, thankfully oh, he signed cool. it for me. So I always had, it's one of those weird things where it's like, because like my buddy has like an Eric Dampier autograph on like a Dirk Nowitzki jersey or whatever, which is a long story, <laughs> but like, and I have a Walter Payton autograph on my White Sox hat. So that's always yeah. uh, pretty good, but at least, yeah, at least Damp and uh, Dirk played on the same team, but there's, yeah, exactly. I'm sure there's many people that have like, you know, I, I know the Chicago radio host was talking about, um, uh, Jason Goffey hosts one of the midday shows. Uh, he was saying that one time he met BJ Armstrong, but all he had was his baseball glove. So like BJ <laughs> Armstrong signed like his baseball glove. Or something. Yeah. Wow. It was incredible. So, <laughs> Yeah, so we've had a lot of digressions on the show. I feel like mm-hmm. that's okay. It's, it's, it's good we're time. nuts. Yeah, so, we're. Uh, I have not yeah. been drinking. I assure you, it is only water that I'm drinking. Okay, so. fair, fair enough. Same here. As well. I don't know what you you're know. drinking, so I can't. I can't. No, say for just sure, just but. water. But but yeah, last night you know there was there was some beer involved. But tonight I'm, uh, <laughs> some libations. Yeah, so. so yes, uh, Alex. Groza. So what you're saying is you're still drunk, and that's why you're nuts. So yeah, still it. yeah, a little bit yeah. Um, so he was uh, really an incredible college player. He was a uh, the. He led the University of Kentucky Fab Five team, the original Fab Five team. He was the center who won the championships in 1948-1949, and he was also the leading scorer on the Olympic team in 48. That was mostly those same Kentucky players that were on that team. You know, they were they were the great powerhouse of their day. Uh, and Groza is from Martins Ferry, Ohio, which is on the eastern edge, borders West Virginia, also from Martins Ferry, Ohio. Alex Gross's brother, Lou, who's a Hall of Fame kicker and offensive lineman for the Browns and also played at Ohio State. John Havlicek and Joe and Phil Necro, the uh, baseball pitchers for Necro, of course, Hall of Famer. Yeah, about like 10,000 I'm assuming it's town. a little town, right? Yeah, it's a really a pretty small town for... Yeah, right. that's crazy. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. There's some other famous people there, too, but the, these are the you know leading ones as well. There's another Ohio State well, player from the six, 80s. Like, yeah. Having like six legit like pro athletes from your small town is a pretty big deal. So, right. Granted, exactly. they're all related, but or most of them are related. But hey, that's still pretty yeah, good. So. That's still that's that's not bad. Yeah. So there you go. Um, and uh, so Groza was uh, he he came to the NBA in, in, in an interesting way. So he um, the a, a group of the fab of the Fab Five along with uh, Joe Holland, uh, who's an old teammate. They actually formed the Indianapolis Olympians themselves. It was the only time that players um, 
themselves owned their own team in the NBA. Uh, uh, Curtis Harris writes uh, about this in the uh, in his, his profile of Alex Groza, and uh, and he was amazing. I mean, he was uh, he was shooting like efficiently, you know, with the efficiency that somebody would have like twenty years later. I mean, he was clearly the second best center in the league behind George Mikan and was about to surpass him at, you know, like 23 years old. Mikan was still, he was a little bit later in his prime, but he's like 51, 52. He was still, you know, he, he was still really, really effective, you know, winning championships there. But he was, um, you know, in his rookie year, he shot almost 48% from the field. The second best player was uh, 42% from the field. So, you know, I mean, he was really shooting at a level that <laughs> no one else was and was just, you know, really, you know, a great score. And um, Olympians were, uh, you know, they they won the division that year. His rookie season, 1950, he was really, uh, effective there the team was effective um he won an unofficial rookie of the year given to him by newspaper writers but they nba does not re- recognize him as winning winning the award because apparently it wasn't official or whatever but but then the uh, after another great season 51 he was um banned from the nba for a uh, infamous um point shaving scandal uh, central college in new york it, it started there and it kind of spread throughout college basketball and uh was um they were arrested in connection to it. They were accused of and admitted taking $500 bribes to shave points. And uh, they were given probation and banned for three years from basketball by a federal judge. Uh, then the uh, the president commissioner of the NBA, Maurice Puddleup, decided to ban them for life, which obviously is a pretty harsh uh Reaction given that um, you know they admitted to what they did, they you know paid punishment. Like three years seems like a reasonable amount of time, but they uh, they're also forced to sell their ownership of the team for a fraction of what it's worth. The franchise just folded uh, two years later. So, um, and his 1951. Uh, averages of 20 plus points 10 plus rebounds and 47 plus from the field would not be accomplished for until you know will chamberlain and oscar robertson were in the league so just was really a ahead of its time in in terms of how far that goes and of course you know he kept him out of basketball for a long time he was able to come back to the aba was a coach and had some front office positions for a while and um and then remained in San Diego after that, working in sales for until his death in 1995 of cancer. So, uh, would would have been you know one of the greats of all time, probably top 50, assuming reasonable health. You know, uh, if he had been able to continue in the league, obviously the gambling scandal would have affected him and would have limited you know his time away. Maybe he would have stayed away anyway, but obviously prevented him from you know ever coming back and ever being able to right. um, you know be around and, and contribute. So obviously just a uh, you know, I mean, it's understandable that the NBA would, you know, the the gambling scandals really hurt the the um, college game. It's understandable the NBA would want to take a hard line on that. But some guys who were, you know, very tenuous connections to uh, gambling, obviously, you've talked about guys like, um, you know, um, uh, you know, we, we've, we've talked about other guys who you were affected by that Roger Brown and uh, and so forth. So, uh, you know, another example of that. For sure, yeah, that's uh, definitely a, an interesting case there, where we're just a guy, you know, in the peak of his powers, just disappears or goes away or whatever for for a multitude of different reasons. But yeah, you, you definitely uh, start projecting his career out, and that's a guy who, who absolutely would be, um, I think, you, you know, given if he stayed and remained, you know, what he was, which I mean, for all intents and purposes, he probably would have for for quite a few more years. Uh, it is kind of a shame then that that's kind of all kind of evaporated and gone. But yeah, it's good that he was able to kind of get back into basketball and wasn't completely back uh, blackballed forever and and, and stuff. So. Uh, we're pretty good uh, for him, but uh, yeah, that's Telus uh, Graza. Uh, so now some uh, interesting ones here. Um, <laughs> these are low-minute specialists, uh, guys that have very odd last 
seasons, but we thought we had to talk about them anyway. Uh, this guy, I'm going to get it, Marlbert. I'm going to say Marlbert for sure. I'm definitely going to forget yeah. the R at some point during this because, like, for some reason, I don't want to say Marlbert. And it's just Marlbert like it makes Marlbert. It makes me have to stop every single second. Like, yeah, I typed I, I type Malbert yeah. like 15 times because that seems to kind of almost make sense. But his name is Marlbert Pratt, and he was Marlbert. Uh, select, yeah. Marlbert. Marlbert. Got it. Selected by the Chicago Bulls in the sixth round of the 1967 NBA draft. Uh, but he never played for the team. He did, though, go to the ABA and joined our good friends, the New Orleans Buccaneers, during the 1967-68 and 1968-69 seasons. Uh, Marlbert only averaged 6.5 minutes per game with the Bucks in 1969, his final season of pro basketball. Uh, they were a good team. Uh, they won 46 games under head coach Bay McCarthy. Uh, stars were Jimmy Jones, Steve Jones, and Red Robbins, so a pretty solid team. Uh, Marlbert's numbers uh, do stand out, though, and he does make this list because, man, did he make the absolute most of every single six and a half of those minutes that he was in the game. Because despite the low minute totals, uh, Marlbert, there we go, I I typed it incorrectly there, uh, in my notes, averaged 5.2 points per game on uh, 3.7 field goal attempts per game and 2.4 free throw attempts in those 6.5 minutes. a lot of stuff happening in just six minutes in the game. Uh, If we extrapolate his numbers to per 36 numbers, uh, he averaged 28 points. Eight points per game and had thirteen point three free throws per game <laughs> and uh, other things. Of course, that's you know taking a very small thing and making it larger, whatever. But still, you know, I, I'm mostly amazed at the amount of free throws and field goals he put up in six minutes. Like three, you know, almost four field goals in six minutes, and then <laughs> the free throws is nuts. Like almost three free throws every six minutes. Yeah, that's, that's really that's, hard. that's like that's really true. tough to do. So uh, yeah. that's Robert for you there. Um, yeah. He had a win share total of 1.3, which is insane for a guy that had so few minutes. Like, 1.3 is very large. There are, are like, serviceable NBA players that get 1.3 win shares in his season. He had that in 6.5 minutes per game. Pretty incredible. Uh, A .193 win shares per 48. Also a super high number there. Uh, Marbert had double digits in 10 games and had made field goals in all but 15 games played. Uh, yeah, he uh, did, did have double digits, too, in just, like, those few amount of minutes. Yeah. It's just incredible. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it didn't, uh, did not last long. That was it for old Marlbert. I don't know exactly what, what happened with him, but uh, Marlbert died a few years ago, uh, but not before being inducted into the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame in 1986. Uh, it was for his remarkable play with Dillard University, where he was a three-time NAIA All-American. So that's Marlbert there for you. Yeah, the interesting thing about Marlbert is that like he never scored more than fourteen points a game in that, that last <laughs> right. season. Yeah, like it's not like he had like one game of thirty and it like boosted up his like averages like weird. You know, no, was, he like, like consistently he, just came in in the last like four minutes of a game or what I assume or whatever. I don't know what he was. He was like the modern Jamal Crawford just smashed into like half the time, which is incredible. Yeah. Uh, that would be delightful if he was anything like Jamal Crawford because we do love Jamal Crawford very much <laughs> right. in the show. So yeah. We yeah. do, yeah. I, I have no idea. I don't know much else about Marlbert, but uh there you go. He's from yeah. Chicago. I do know that. But uh, yeah, there you go. So uh, uh, it's all good. Yeah, I'll walk around when I'm done with the coal mine expedition. I'll go around the uh, streets of Chicago and see if anybody knows anything about Marlbert Pratt. So yes, yes. So good times. Yeah. So uh, and we got uh, Butch Fair of uh, the uh, Phoenix Suns was a second round uh, draft pick uh, there. And uh, he joined the uh, Suns team in 76, who had joined them the year after in 77, after they had made the uh, finals, uh, upsetting the Sonics and the Warriors. And, um, of course, we talked about that. The Suns, who were only 42 and 40, took the Celtics to a game six in that series. Uh, And um, they struggled the uh, next season with some injuries and some other things. And uh, 
they had rookie Butch Fair, who was a one and done in the NBA, uh, managed to get 5.2 points per game and only 10.1 minutes per game uh, <laughs> for 36 numbers, 18.3 points per game, 5.5 rebounds per game uh, and only average 2.5 points per game his first 30 games in the last 18 he averaged 9.6, including a 20-point game in his fourth last game, and was double digits in all but three of his last 10 games. So certainly went out there with a flurry. Um, yeah, it looks like a guy who's like, oh, this guy's on the rise. It's the rookies getting this stuff together. You know, our team's not that yeah. good. We will try this guy out. Okay, he's, he's doing some stuff. He's doing pretty well. He's scoring a little bit. All right, Butch Fair, let's go. Second-round draft pick, let's go. It didn't happen. He retired. Yeah, he joined the family be, business. <laughs> right, the family business, yeah. Uh Sell parts to the appliance and automotive industries. So, yeah, so. I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> he, uh, yeah, yes. this is a quote that he had with, uh, I think he went to Vanderbilt. So there was a quote of uh, somebody from Vanderbilt trying to catch up with him. Uh, the family business was Ray Fair and Associates. And he says, uh, we sell component parts mostly to the appliance and automotive industry, which made me that's fall asleep even thinking about yeah. it. So that's, right. uh, that's pretty good. And then like, uh, I think he had to relocate to West Virginia. It was something like that where they had to move across where And being in Phoenix, he couldn't possibly help out the family business because they were all on the East Coast because there wasn't production in the West. So it's a lot of weird stuff here. But, yeah, it's really interesting because he looks like the guy who was kind of getting there, getting there. But it's, it's like a different – you know, even even though we're still talking about the mid seventies and mid to late seventies, it's still kind of a different era where you know the family business might be more lucrative and and more of a long term investment than playing in the NBA. So Butch said, "Ah, yeah, screw this. I'm going to the I'm going to Ray Fair and Associates, and uh, I'm going to be a, a salesman. I think he was like a traveling salesman or something like that for uh, for the old uh, Ray Fair and Associates. Yeah. So that, that's yeah, Butch. That's, <laughs> uh, there you go, Butch Fair. Hey, you know, you never, don't know what could have happened." But, uh, you know, we, he has the uh, I'm sure there are some Suns fans with some memories of uh, Butch Fair. If you are a Suns fan with memory of Butch Fair, please let us know because because you would uh, be very uh, unique. Uh, I, I suppose uh, there are probably not many uh, out there. So, no. And, and speaking of not many out there, well, what are the chances there is ever another Butch in the NBA? Oh, a Butch. Oh, there's there's got to be Butch at some point. You think? How many okay. Butches have there been? The, well, I'm, I'm sure there are like a lot of like 50s and 60s. That's a, yeah, there were a lot. And then, yeah, I think Butch it's, beard. Yeah. it's kind of fallen off since then. So I, I don't know. That is a uh, it is an interesting question. Uh, right, here we go. Well, we can look. Uh, well, oh, yeah. Uh, Butch Van Bredikoff. Um, yes. Yeah. One of the coached and, and, and played in the early days. Uh, there's a Butch Booker. <laughs> uh, played one year, uh, Butch Fair, uh, Butch Graves in 1985, Butch Joyner, uh, Butch Carter, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Butch Lee, uh, those are the only, uh, yeah, obviously, other than Butch Beard, those are the only uh, first name Butches. Uh, there's some yeah. last. So, last so we got Butch Carter is our last one that we have in 1986 is the last Butch to uh, make it to the league. So, yeah, let's that's, see. That's uh, that's tough, man. I don't know. <laughs> I, who knows how many how many Butches we'll have? I mean, that's a. Uh, <laughs> You know, I could see Butch being a name that, you know, that could come back. Yeah. Yeah. Strong, you know, strong, masculine name there. Butch. Yeah. I could see some parents being like upset by, you know, the the way that our world has changed. They'd be like, I'm going to name my kid Butch. Like that kid won't be wrong. Like he's going to play basketball and his name's going to be Butch. Yeah. I uh, was talking to somebody today, and we predicted that Bonnie would be like a, like a hip like girl's name. Yeah, like that's a that's a pretty cool name too. I, I I've yeah. always I've always liked that name, so that'd be interesting. Yeah. Too. Maybe maybe if I, if I ever do uh, have a child, I'll name her Bonnie. Just get it there started. I have, if I have a boy, Bonnie, I'll name him so, Butch. Yeah. I will promise that one way or another, I will get either of those names starting. Uh, pending the Butch. Uh, and penning the Bonnie, I may have to talk to the wife about that one. But uh, fair enough. Fair I feel enough. like Bonnie, she, she might listen to, but she's, is going to be a tough one. That's going to be a tough. Yeah, sell. yeah. So Dirk, um, I, I'm going to work on Dirk first, and if that doesn't work, I'll go to Butch, and then I'll just Dirk's, stop. A, Dirk's a good name. Yeah, <laughs> like, good. you're going to yeah. be cool. If your name's yeah. Dirk, so your name's Dirk Krejci, like that, you know. Oh yeah, lit. that's good. <laughs> that's, that's, that's excellent, right there. Guys looking yeah. for a Dirk Krejci, but uh, Dirk Krejci, Butch Krejci yeah. is a pretty Dirk. Butch Krejci, Butch Krejci. Yeah, he could work in Stippo's coal mine for sure. Butch Krejci. That's almost. 
That's Marlbert Pratt level, if you would say. So, <laughs> right. yeah. As the old saying goes, the Marlbert Pratt. That's a yeah. Marlbert Pratt name right there. That's that is indeed Marlbert Pratt name. Well, oldest. this has been a Marlbert Pratt show for sure. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Spirit yeah. animal of the show. So, uh, hopefully, everyone's enjoyed it and uh, at least gotten through it. And uh, thanks for checking us out. You can find us at the step back at fansided.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast. Just search for Over and Back NBA. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. So uh, thanks for listening, and we're back again soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.